0: for our study and understanding for the next well few days or whatever length it may take is also from the Nikaya, the Long Discourses. It's called Potapada Sutta because the man who is talking to the Buddha is called Potapada. It's his name. And it concerns States of Consciousness, that's the under-title for that, for that discourse. But before we get to that, of course, there is an introduction and there are other things that are not so much introduction, but some of it, some of it, which is not uninteresting because we get an idea how these discourses came about it's a historical this um, explanation of how it happened and also where it happened and what was thought important and many of the things which were considered to be important or not important at that time are still the same today even though this is said In a different kind of setting, in a different culture, people are always the same. The culture and the setting change the language. And even though this is absolutely modern translation, it's just been done, I think, last year, it still has some of the um, words in it which make it relate to that time. And yet, it relates to us in the same way. 1987, not last year, a few years ago. But still, a very new um, translation. There's no way to make everything sound absolutely modern, because otherwise it isn't a translation anymore. Then it's an explanation. And that's what I do but the translation has to abide by that what is actually in the canon it starts again with Thus Have I Heard, Ivamne sutam. once the Buddha was staying at Savati in Jeta's Grove in Anathapindika's Park now, quite a number of you will know this story but I will tell it for those who haven't been with me lately may or have forgotten it. Uh, Savati is, uh, is today's, um, is today still quite an important town. And um, the uh, Jeta's Grove and Anitapindika's Park can be seen there. The ruins of it, of course. Now, Anitapindika was a millionaire, and he bought the first monastery for the Buddha, and the way this came about was that he decided he would like to do that. And so he went all over trying to find a suitable place, and he couldn't find one. And finally he came upon a beautiful mango grove and found out that it belonged to Prince Jeta. That's why it's called Jeta's Grove. And then he went to Prince Jeta a and said, I would like to buy your mango grove. How much do you want for it? And, um, Prince Jeta said, it's not for sale. And Anasapindika went three times. He was determined to get this because this was really, he thought, the absolutely fitting place for the Buddha and his monks. And the third time, Prince Jeta thought about it and thought, well, if this man, being a millionaire, is so keen on buying my mango grove, I'll just set him such a high price that he either is going to pay through the nose, or he will desist from bothering me. And he said, you can have the, the grove, the mango grove, if you fill every inch of the ground with a gold coin. And the said, all right. So he called his employees to bring wheelbarrows full of golden coins. And with these wheelbarrows full of golden coins, he covered the ground. And then he ran out of golden coins at the very end. There was a square left. And then Prince Yeter said, well, you can have a reduction in price. You can have that little piece for nothing. And after having bought this mango grove with one third of his wealth, he spent another third of his wealth on b- building kutis, meditation huts, and furnishing them with the necessary items, like water jugs and things like that. And so to this day, the place is called the Jata Grove, Anata Park. It's a very beautiful place, and the ruins of the kutis are there, and the ruins that are there are, of course, bricks the wood would have long deteriorated. So the kutis were ma- mostly made out of brick with, of course, some wooden structure uh, to hold the roof and all that. Now, at that time, when he went to this Jeta Grove, and he spent, by the way, 25 rains retreats there, the three months in the uh, Indian summer when it rains and when monks and nuns near or in the monastery and many of the discourses were given there at that time the wanderer Potapada was at the debating hall near the Tinduka tree I'm afraid I have no idea what a Tinduka tree is in the single hall park of Queen Malika with a large crowd of about 300 wanderers now Queen Malika was the wife of King Pasenadi, and King Pasenadi and Queen Malika had been followers of the Buddha for a long time. They were great supporters of the Buddha, and supplied help and assistance, and also supplied centers for a spiritual discussions. It was a debating hall, and uh, this park apparently belonged to Queen Malika, and there were 300 wanderers there. Now, the word wanderer is an arbitrary translation of a recluse, a spiritual, um, a person that is on the spiritual path, In India, this is common to this day, that people wander around the countryside um, getting their food through begging, but not like beggars, but just having alms from people who want to support spiritual practice. And then the Buddha, rising early, took his robe and bowl and went to Savati for alms. But it occurred to him, it's too early to go to Savati for alms. Suppose I were to go to the debating hall, to see the wanderer, Puttabata, Puttapada, and he did so. There, Puttapada was sitting with his crowd of wanderers, all shouting and making a great commotion, indulging in various kinds of unedifying conversations. Now now we get a list of the kind of conversations that the Buddha were not suitable for people on a spiritual path and we can see what that they also apply to us today such as about clothing beds garlands perfumes relations carriages villages kings robbers ministers armies, dangers, war, food, drink, other countries, women, (coughs) heroes, street and well gossip. Now we don't have well gossip anymore because we don't have well, but we've got gossip. Talk of the departed, desultory chatting, speculations about land and sea, of being and non-being. In other words, these are all topics that would lead the mind astray. It would lead the mind <coughs> to being quite unconcentrated and easily caught into hate or greed, because war and, and dangers and kings Prime ministers, robbers, armies, well, hate, food and drink, greed, clothing, and that type of thing. So these things, well, desultory is idle chatter, just talking for talking's sake. So it is um, not unimportant to see that these things do apply to us also. And they are included in the fourth precept to refrain from this is idle chatter or even the wrong kind of speech. Now, Pottapada saw the Buddha coming from a distance and so he called his followers to order and said, Be quiet, gentlemen. Don't make a noise, gentlemen. That ascetic Gautama is coming, and he likes quiet and speaks in praise of quiet. If he sees that this company is quiet, he will most likely want to come and visit us. At this all these wanderers fell silent. And then the Buddha came and he said and he said to him, Welcome, Lord. Welcome, revered Lord. At last, the Lord has gone out of his way to visit us. Please be seated. A seat is prepared. So, obviously, this um, Potapada was very happy to see the Buddha and uh, welcomed him very nicely. The Lord sat down, the Buddha sat down on the prepared seat, and Pata Pada took a low stool and sat down to one side. And the Lord said, What were you all talking about? What conversation have I interrupted? And Kata said, Lord, never mind this conversation we were having just now. It will not be difficult to hear about that later. In other words, he knew very well that all this chit-chat that had been going on would not be something to repeat to the Buddha. So he kind of tried to get out of that. So he's, But he rather would discuss something that had happened earlier. Now, in the past two days, Lord, the discussion among the ascetics and Brahmins of various schools sitting together and meeting in the debating hall has concerned the higher extinction of consciousness and how this takes place. Now, that, of course, is a topic that he thinks would be far more down the, in the Buddha's line than the other stuff they were talking about. Uh, it, in, it says that this particular explanation, expression, namely higher, conscious, uh, higher extinction of consciousness, is not an expression that the Buddha would have used. It's an expression that, these, that sect of Wanderers were using. It's higher, perce- actually, it's literally translated means higher perception extinction. So what does he say? Higher extinction of consciousness. Higher perception, yes. So it's something that the Buddha did not use, that expression. Now, now this Pratapada says, Some people said, once perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition. Now that's one view. When they arise, one is conscious. When they cease, one is unconscious. That is how they explained it. But then somebody else said, no, that's not how it is. Perception are a person's self, which comes and goes. So here somebody has the idea that perceptions are the self and they come and go. Now the translator says, and this is not unimportant, that the word perception is of course one of the five khandas, one of the four mental khandas but here it has also the meaning of consciousness as opposed to being unconscious so these words are not distinctive so here the word sanya, which is being used in Pali while it is the the perception of the four mental khandas also is used here in the sense of conscious as opposed to unconscious which gives it a totally different slant of course and this would not have been the Buddha's way of using it this was the way of the, uh, sect, the sect using it when it comes, when this perception comes one is conscious, when it goes one is unconscious but another one said, that's not how it is these are ascetics and Brahmins of great powers, of great influence, they draw down consciousness into a man and withdraw it. When they draw it down into him, he is conscious. When they withdraw it, he is unconscious. Now, you see there's a great deal of controversy about what is consciousness and what is perception, and I think to this day nothing has changed. There's a great deal of discussion and... um, uncertainty about what is consciousness and what is actually perception so we'll see what these these fellows come up with so now they've had all these different ideas the first idea is that it comes and goes without cause or condition well obviously the buddha isn't going to agree to that then they when they come one is conscious when they go one is unconscious then the other one said no that's not this at all the perception that one has, the consciousness actually in this case, is a person's self, which comes and goes. And then when it goes, it's, and one is unconscious. But then another one said, no, no, that's not what it is at all. Ascetics and Brahmins have great powers, and so they draw down consciousness into a person and then withdraw it. When they draw it down into the person, he's conscious, when they withdraw it, he's unconscious, which would mean that one is at the mercy of people that have that great power, which would be rather unfortunate, wouldn't it? Um, And another one said, no, no, that's not how it is at all. There are deities of great powers, of great influence. They draw down consciousness into a person and then withdraw it. When they draw it down, he is conscious. When they withdraw it, he is unconscious. Now, they're not even, um, they're not uh, contented with ascetics and brahmins, which are priests but they like to think that it's devas, so uh, beings of other realms that bring consciousness to one and then take it away and then one is unconscious. Um, It was in this connection that I thought of the Lord. Now that's the part saying that. Ah, surely the blessed Lord, he's supremely skilled about these matters. The blessed Lord well understands the higher extinction of consciousness what then, Lord, is this higher extinction of consciousness? So when all this was being said, he thought, well, the Buddha should know, so I'll ask him. Now, now the Buddha answers him. In this matter, Pratapada, those ascetics and Brahmins who say once perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition are totally wrong. Well, the first thing is totally wrong. This was obvious because the Buddha's teaching is very, very often called... The teaching of cause and effect. Everything that is conditioned has to have a cause for it, so that this wouldn't be agreeable to him. It was obvious. And why is that? Once perceptions arise and cease owing to causes and conditions. Some perceptions arise through training, and some pass away through training. And what is this training? Potapada, a Tathagata, rises in this world, an Arahant, fully enlightened Buddha, endowed with wisdom and conduct, welfarer, knower of the world, incomparable trainer of men to be tamed, is our standard traditional uh, epitaphs for the Buddha. Teacher of gods and humans, enlightened and blessed, he, having realized it by his own super-knowledge, proclaims the world with its devas, maras, and brahmas, rahmas its princes and people. He preaches the Dhamma which is lovely in its beginning, lovely in its middle, lovely in its ending, in the spirit and in the letter, and displays a fully perfected and purified holy life. Now, actually, he's not answering. What he's saying is that it is totally wrong to think that perceptions, now he goes back to perception. He doesn't use consciousness. He uses eff- effectively the word perception, which means that one is aware of what one is contacting, the naming of it, uh, and that has a cause and condition. And then he says some arise through training and some pass away through training. And then he says, what is this training? And he, the only answer he gives is that The Buddha gives this training. He is the incomparable trainer of men. So as we go on in the Sutta, we will find out what the training is. But at this point, he only says that the Buddha can give this training. The word Tathagata is talking about himself in the third person. It means literally translated, the one gone such. Gata is gone, Tata, such. The one gone such. Suchness. There is no cause and condition for suchness. Suchness is, which means enlightenment. And when he talks about himself in the third person, he uses that epithet, Tathagata. It is also used sometimes by others, but usually only he uses it for himself. So, he says that he gives this training, eh? and he pro- proclaims the world with devas, maras, and brahmas, princes and people. Now, maras are, in a, in a, 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 in the sense that it's being used here, are devils. But in reality, it's our own tempt- temptation. And that's the way the Buddha uses it. And Brahmas are gods. And he does talk about realms where gods live. But they're just as impermanent as we are, only they last longer. Very much longer. And princes and people, so he makes a distinction between um, nobility as far as uh, kings and such are concerned, and ordinary people. And the devas are the beings which are of a finer um, finer consciousness and also finer matter. They're made up of finer matter at higher realms. So here, what we're looking at is a description of, as, of beings in different levels of consciousness but the reality of it is and the Buddha does speak about that that consciousness is so we all have the potential for being in any of the realms with our consciousness if we so desire and have purified ourselves enough it's a matter of purification we can be in a hell realm where Mara is king and it's quite possible <coughs> to be in that, in a human body. We can be in a deva realm, which is um, also, in, while still in the human body, it's our consciousness, the higher realm. And we can also be in the brahma realm, if there is sufficient purification. The vehicle, and we will come to that in a minute here in this uh, discourse, the vehicle for... The deva and the Brahma realm are the jhanas, the meditative absorptions. and the um, expression are the four Brahma viharas, the four divine abidings Brahma, God, vihara, place to live, the four supreme emotions. So we have eight jhanas and four supreme emotions. And if we make it our business, as a meditator should, to be able to have sufficient concentration for the jhanas and change our emotional state from the usual up and down, back and forth, negative to positive and back again to negative, make it our business to stay with the four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, joy with others and equanimity, then our consciousness is raised to any one of these levels, as far as we can go in, according to our own purification so it isn't so much, and this is often thought to be, that there are 31 realms according to the Buddha's explanation and it's usually thought to be that this is something that doesn't concern us, because there are other beings floating around and we can't see them, can't talk to them, or maybe they will come down once in a while. It's not like that at all. It's a matter of different stages of consciousness because consciousness is. It's universal. It is everywhere. And we are all part and parcel of that. So it's entirely up to us which of the realms we inhabit. And it's not uncommon to inhabit several of these realms during one day in consciousness. It doesn't mean that our body floats away. It's just that our mind floats away. And he preaches the Dhamma, which is lovely in its beginning, lovely in its middle, and lovely in its ending. The Dhamma is literally translated, it means law and law of nature, but it also means that which upholds. And it's always lovely, in the beginning, middle, and end. The beginning are the first steps of Dhamma, and the middle is that that we practice, and the end, when we have finished our practice. In the spirit and in the letter. Well, the letter, we can say, is the information, and the spirit is the meaning behind that. The information, which you will find in a book like that, very rarely helps anybody. It's got to be the spirit that's embedded in those words. That's why people do, well, there are some that can read it with the spirit in it, but very few. Most of the time we see the letter, but we don't know the spirit. And this is why in the Buddhist time, people were enlightened by hearing one single discourse, because it isn't the words it's what's behind the words the spirit of it and that what's behind the words that touches the heart the heart has to be touched first and then the mind if the heart isn't touched the mind's going to be in trouble because it's too difficult and he displays the fully perfected and purified spiritual life in other words he's an example He's our model. A disciple goes forth and practices the moralities, And that, for him, is then the morality. Now, as far as morality is concerned, it actually uh, relates to the sutta that we discussed in the course we just had, the Samanapala Sutta, um, where the morality is not just the five precepts with which we started this course taking the refuge and precept, but it goes further and refines all of them and the refining then goes as far as not talking about these topics that were mentioned here here's a particular one now yes the um first the five precepts and practicing their opposites, which I have already mentioned. And then, as a next step, because of that, he feels secure. He doesn't feel in any danger. He has no remorse or regret. And then comes the next step, guarding the sense doors. And having guarded the sense doors, which means that one does not use one's senses strictly for pleasurable and um, interesting input, but we use them for what they're meant. They're meant for survival. If we couldn't see, it would be much more difficult than if we can. And we don't, we have understood that our sense input in our sense pleasures are so um, fleeting that it isn't worth running after them while they come to us anyway in a certain measure we don't have to look for them and as we don't look for them we're not disappointed if we don't get them so we have far more even-mindedness when we do get sense pleasures we don't want to hang on to them so we're not disappointed when they disappear again as they must when they have disappeared we don't extend our energy and time to try to get them back in other words we're contented with the way things are now that contentment it's an absolute necessity for successful meditation. If we are wanting something, whatever it may be, pleasure out of some meditation, we're not going to get it. It's an expectation. We are not going to be watching what we're actually doing. We're putting our mind into that, what we want to get out of it. So if we have understood that We guard our senses to the point where we are no longer so dependent upon them for our happiness. Then there is naturally contentment, a contentment with what there is. It doesn't mean that there aren't any nice sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch sensations, or thoughts. They're there but we're contented whether we have them or not. We have recognized their inherent non-satisfactoriness because of their impermanence and also because they do not provide us with what we really want. What we really want is a deep inner happiness and peace which is lasting. We don't want just sense pleasure. We take them as a substitute when we can't find the other. And since most people can't find the other, they're taken as a substitute all the time. It's, after all, better than nothing. But that's not true. That's a wrong way of looking at it. It's not better than nothing. It's an aberration. Because we're using time and energy, often money, and very often our whole life, trying to get Essential gratification. And since it isn't satisfying, we are and have to spend so much time on it, we do not go a different way. So it's not better than nothing, it is the wrong way to go. And that's why the second step, after keeping precepts and cultivating the opposites, that the next step is the sense the guarding the senses and the Buddha calls this guarding the senses noble moral conduct this is not just ordinary moral conduct this is a noble conduct and it's noble because it leads us unto the path of the noble one it is a far greater step than just trying to keep the five precepts pure that in itself is already difficult enough. Most people have enough difficulty with those five, with the cultivating of the opposite. But the next step, guarding the senses. And guarding the senses is a necessity for the meditative path, for the meditative absorptions. The meditative absorptions, as we will see over and over again in the Buddhist discourses, are a necessity for insight. If the mind does not have the ability to stay still long enough, it has not got the weight and the power to go into depth. If it flips from here to there, it will only fleetingly touch depth. When it comes to contentment, the Buddha mentions the four requisites clothing, shelter, food and medicine when sick and that's all that one really needs to keep alive and we can see from that how much more we usually think we need now obviously in a lay household Many more things are needed. But it is very interesting and important to start distinguishing between need and greed. And when we can distinguish between the two, we will see that there is so much unnecessary ballast hanging around us, and not just only in a material sense, also in a mental sense all the things we think we ought to know, we ought to do, we ought to have, we ought to keep. And with all that, why do we do it? We build up an identity. Now, if we have nothing and know nothing and are nothing, it's very difficult to satisfy our ego illusion unless the ego says, oh, I know, I am nothing. That's me being nothing. <laughs> so it can turn that around too. But ordinarily we don't do that. What we do is we have a lot and then we've got a nice identification uh, system there when we can use a, either the whole lot or just pick out the things we like and that's what we identify with. So that's where all this collecting and... Grasping and um, getting more comes from. It seems to give the ego a broader base to stand on. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. now put your attention on the loving warmth that exists within your heart go inside and feel connect with Your heart center where there is love and warmth, giving and caring to be found. Find that center in yourself and let it spread throughout your body from head to toe. Let that loving warmth from your heart center reach out to the person nearest you. Fill him or her from head to toe with that feeling of care giving Loving. Let it spread from your heart center to everyone here, filling everyone from head to toe with loving warmth. Reach out to your parents with the love and the warmth that comes, comes from your heart. Fill them from head to toe. Embrace them with the best your heart can give. Let your heart reach out to those who are near and dear to you. Fill them with all your heart contains. Don't wish anything in return. Let the loving warmth coming from your heart center reach out to all your friends. Feel them from head to toe. Embrace them. It's the best your heart has to give. Only giving, not expecting. of people who are part of your life wherever you find them whether you know them or not just meeting them seeing them if the loving warmth which is contained within your heart reach out to all of them Filling them, surrounding them, with all you have to give. think of anyone whom you might not like or towards whom you are totally indifferent and let the loving warmth from your heart center reach out to that person too non-discriminating non-judgmental just giving fill him or her Around him with the loving warmth from your heart. Now let the loving womb flow from your heart. Like beautiful rays going in all directions, touching living beings everywhere. moving them, supporting them strengthening them give all that you can from your heart to beings near and far Now, fill and surround yourself with that warmth and love from your heart center so that nothing else can impinge. Just love and warmth within you. And embracing you, creating peace, creating well being. of love spread far and wide.